tonight when a right turn goes wrong. There's two signs you can see directly behind me here that say the same thing. Don't turn right on red. Another frightening collision caught on camera and what some say must be done to keep cyclists safe. Plus, flight failure. I've heard horror stories, but never something like this. A BC family stuck in Saskatoon for days. How the airline's response only made things worse. And a construction worker holds on for dear life. Oh my God, oh my God, hang on. Hang on, up. just let your heart out for bro. How he ended up in the harrowing situation and why this work site is no stranger to accidents. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We begin tonight with another frightening incident caught on video involving a cyclist and a large truck. This time it happened in Victoria and it has cycling advocates once again calling for sidebars for large trucks. As Kamal Karmali reports, they say the simple safety measure would save countless lives and injuries. And a warning, some of this video might be disturbing. What could have been a deadly collision caught on camera Tuesday morning. The light at this downtown Victoria intersection appears to turn red, but a truck continues to turn right as its back wheel collides with an oncoming cyclist. It was horrible. It was a real uh, wake-up call. It's not clear. Cars aren't paying attention. The cyclist sent to hospital expected to survive. The driver stayed on scene, cooperating with investigators. Victoria police not saying who had the right of way, but there is a sign highlighting no right turns allowed for vehicles when the light is red. You know, in this case, there were looks like two vehicles ran the red. The incident eerily similar to the one in Vancouver one week ago, when a dump truck turned right at an intersection, killing 28-year-old Augustine Beltran. Cyclist advocacy groups argue in both cases, cyclists had the right of way. I think the responsibility lies with the operator of the vehicles. And, and that's simply because upon review of the video, we see the lights, we see the signals, and we see that both cyclists were riding in marked protected crosswalks and riding with lights. They were, they were where they were supposed to be. But riders should also be aware truck drivers may not always be able to see them. The BC Truckers Association says the elevated vehicle with the driver sitting on the left side makes it difficult to notice cyclists or pedestrians during a right-hand turn. Commercial vehicles have very, very large blind spots. And while drivers are trained and really practice really good driving techniques to make sure that they clear their blind spots, it's difficult. One measure that could help, mandatory side guards on all trucks, something this Victoria Cycling Group is pushing for. When mistakes happen like this one, someone doesn't end up, you know, like in Vancouver, unfortunately, you know, losing their life. Transport Canada and BC's Ministry of Transportation did not respond to Global News' questions on mandating side guards in time for our deadline. But with more cyclists and trucks sharing the road, those questions are not going to go away anytime soon. Kamal Kuramali, Global News. 
The victim of a targeted shooting in Surrey earlier this week has now been identified. Police say 28-year-old Mohammed Abdulrahman Mohammed was shot outside a days in on King George Boulevard Monday afternoon. He died at the scene. IHIT says Mohammed was involved in drug trafficking, but they aren't able to say whether he has gang ties. Shortly after the shooting, a car was found on fire in an alley on 96th Avenue. Investigators are asking anyone with video of either scene to contact them. So far, no arrests have been made. Vancouver police are investigating a machete attack in which two people were slashed. It happened last month outside a hotel on the downtown east side at Maine and Hastings. Take a look at this video. Investigators are looking for this man. He's described as being in his 40s or 50s, about 5 feet 10 inches tall. Police say the suspect slashed a man and a woman as they were loading their luggage into a taxi. We don't know what the motive is. Um, we don't know if there was any interaction between the three. Uh, investigators do believe, though, that it was unprovoked and it was uh, random in nature. So, again, we need anyone with information to please call us. The couple were taken to, ho uh, taken to hospital the day of the attack but have since been released. After more than three years of study and consultation, Vancouver City Council is finally dealing with a citywide land use strategy. As Madagahi reports, perhaps not surprisingly, not everyone thinks this new plan is the road to a better future. The planning approach of the past is simply not sufficient to meet the challenges that confront Vancouver today. It has already been called many things a high-level plan, a land-use vision, or a new direction for the city. We have many plans by local areas, but we don't have a unified citywide plan. And on Wednesday, after two and a half years of preparation and roughly $10 million spent, the team behind the much-anticipated Vancouver plan put its final draft before City Council. A document with a 30-year roadmap for what the city should look like and how it can keep up with the demand for housing. What this plan proposes for its directions is to allow for more housing options in all neighborhoods and rental housing options in all neighborhoods. We are moving beyond the sort of you know single-family home vernacular with the the yard and the white picket fence and that we're going to see a lot more density in a lot of those neighborhoods that traditionally haven't seen density and that's I think that's a good thing. And while admitting the Vancouver plant won't actually make an immediate tangible impact on zoning or affordability, Councillor Pete Fry says it is necessary for future housing decisions. We are a growing city, we're a growing population, we need to make space for folks. And perhaps not entirely surprising should be the fact that it has already become controversial. Some critics calling it simply a plan to make a plan. I was very much in favor and, and really encouraged uh, the, the, an overall plan. Penny Gerstein directs UBC's Housing Research Collaborative. I'm very disappointed at because it really doesn't provide the kind of planning structure for us to be moving forward. It's a lot of platitudes, a lot of kind of nice words, but you know, where is, where is the real uh, sense that, that this is really, that urban design, which has become so important to how do you create cities. A vote is expected before the upcoming election, and if passed, it will be up to the new council to put the Vancouver plan into action. In Matagahi, Global News. 
And Vancouver City Council has gone against a staff recommendation and approved a plan to double the size of Davie Street's popular Fountainhead pub. Staff had argued the application contravened a city policy prohibiting two large liquor establishments from operating within 100 metres of each other. There is a similarly sized bar right across the street. In order to expand under the current rules, the bar would be required to apply to be licensed as two separate smaller bars. The city is now moving to change that rule altogether. So staff was following the letter of the rule and they say, OK, you can do it, but you have to run a separate business, apply for a separate liquor license, a separate business license, you need separate insurance, all kinds of additional costs, a separate kitchen, a separate bar. Would have cost this business tens of thousands of dollars, taken an additional year of delays to end up at the exact same place council just found a way to say yes to last night. By taking over an adjacent space that has been empty for the past two years, Fountainhead will be able to increase its seating capacity from 147 up to 319. We're hearing another travel horror story tonight. This time, it's a Victoria family of four who ended up being stranded in Saskatoon for three days with little support from their airline. And as Kylie Stanton reports, they weren't alone. And I've got two of the three hotels. With every receipt, the total climbs. $82 in parking for the airport. Hundreds of dollars spent trying to navigate a travel nightmare. Jennifer Langley says should not have happened. I've heard horror stories, but never something like this. Langley was set to fly back to Victoria after visiting her grandmother in Saskatoon last week. Her mother and two young children in tow. But when Flair Air cancelled their flight just hours before they were supposed to take off, Langley says they were left stranded until the airline's next flight out three days later. If they would have cancelled the flight and given us the hotel and the vouchers and all of that, that would have been one thing. I wouldn't be here today. The first night, Flair Air provided vouchers for a hotel stay and food. But from there, Langley had to call every morning to have them sent her way. If they did arrive, they were late and didn't cover the needs of all four people travelling. The last hotel voucher wasn't even valid. So my credit card was actually charged for both rooms the third night. And it turns out she was not alone. This is my boarding pass. Crystal McGough was on the same flight. She didn't have cash or a credit card to cover the costs of the cancellation. Her parents had to send her money as she fought the airline. For vouchers. It was very demeaning having to contact Flair every day, multiple times a day, to beg for my my housing and my food. In a statement, a spokesperson for Flair Airlines writes, it is taking a look at the specifics of the flight and in the meantime will contact our passengers directly. But according to Air Passenger Rights, if an airline cancels a flight, it must book affected passengers on another one within nine hours. The airline is also on the hook for compensation. That in Langley's case amounted to $728.44. If the airline refuses to pay, then you take the airline to small claims court. It's something Langley is seriously considering. What comes down to a matter of principle. Because they shouldn't get away with it. I would rather spend the money. I don't want Flair to have it at this point. Kylie Stanton, Global News. It's been a week since Premier John Horgan announced he will be stepping down as leader. And today, the field of candidates to replace him got a little bit smaller. Keith Baldry joins us now with more. Uh, Keith, MLA Ravi Kalon, who we had talked about last week as perhaps mm -hmm. being one of the front runners, now says his hat is not in the ring. 
Yes, this came out of the blue today, Sophie. Uh, quite the surprise. Ravi Kalan, the current jobs minister, uh, widely presumed to have been one of the two front runners uh, to replace John Horgan, along with Attorney General uh, David Eby. Unexpectedly saying today, not only is he not going to be running in this race, but he is throwing his backing, his endorsation behind David Eby. He says David Eby is the guy he thinks has the most winnable chance of repeating as victor and premier come the next election. Also, he basically says this was a personal decision for him. This really was about putting his own family as a 12-year-old son first ahead of politics. I've got a young family uh, and, uh, and you know, when you have a young family, you have to weigh out all the different needs and uh, pressures that uh, young families face uh, when their uh, parent, one parent is away. And so, uh, you know, I think being a dad is, is one of the most important jobs that any parent has and certainly the most important job I have. And so my family needs me for uh, these uh, critical years. And, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pleased to be able to make the decision because I want to be there for them. All right, Keith, no one has made it official that they're mm -hmm. seeking the leadership yet. But could Kalen's decision not to throw his hat in the ring affect who does? Oh, oh, yeah, it's going to get uh, the field of potential candidates will now shrink because the scenario we had with Kalon in the race with David Eby is he had two front runners, potentially easier for a third or fourth place finisher to move up the middle in subsequent ballots. Now, with one of those front runners out, you've only got one, and it's going to be hard for anyone, I think, to catch David Eby, who I'm told has the will have the backing, not yet, but will over time the backing of more than half the caucus of the NDP. That's a significant amount of political might behind David Eby. I think that's going to discourage some would-be challengers or would-be candidates from jumping into the race. So the field of candidates is going to get a lot smaller. Well, we'll see who will be the first to, or, or perhaps the only, to make it yeah. official. Thanks, Keith. Right. A Surrey man had quite a shock when he opened up his electricity bill. It turns out he was being charged for his neighbor's power usage. How Consumer Matters helped turn up the heat on BC Hydro. Next on the News Hour. Oh my God, how the f*** did this happen? Ahead on the news hour, the shocking moment a construction worker was seen dangling from a crane in downtown Toronto. Plus, sliding into recess, the unique feature at a Vancouver elementary school and how the students helped come up with the idea later. First, though, a Surrey man is speaking out about his ordeal with BC Hydro. When it came to light, his electricity meter had been mixed up with his neighbors years ago. His first clue was a sudden spike in his power bill. But when he reached out to the Crown Corporation, the response from them was less than urgent. That is until Consumer Matters and Drua got involved. And Thanks, Sophie. George Rosenfeld became suspicious when his hydro bill went up by hundreds of dollars. The Surrey resident says Hydro said it would investigate, but it would take months. Well, George didn't want to wait and came to Consumer Matters to help speed things up. This could have been handled a lot differently. George Rosenfeld describes his recent experience with BC Hydro when he raised concerns about paying for the wrong smart meter at his townhouse complex. My average bill would be anywhere from like $170 to $200 for, for the two-month period. I got a bill of almost $600. Back in April, the Surrey resident reached out to the public utility. He suspected he was accidentally being billed for his neighbor's meter after his neighbor ran into a heating issue and had to use several electrical space heaters. It's got to be that. It's got to be the electrical meters he's using. Adding to George's suspicion, he recalled how back in 2011, BC Hydro switched all the meters at his townhouse complex to smart meters. 
His meter is side by side with his neighbors. But he says Hydro wasn't very receptive. No, no, that's your meter. That's what you used. George says he was told an investigation would be launched, but it would take months. I'm thinking this is something they should address right away. Like, this is quite a bit of money. While waiting for answers, George says with the help of a hydro representative, he did a test on his smart meter tracking the emulator, which lights up when the meter is working and turns off when it's not, and made this discovery. I went outside, had a look at the two meters, and sure enough, the meter I thought that was mine, the emulator was still running, and the one that I thought was my neighbor's, it was completely off. He relayed his findings to Hydro staff, who then put a hold on his account. But he says there was no urgency on Hydro's part to act right away. I would assume giving them two weeks would be a, a grace period for them, but they were more into saying this is going to take months. Frustrated, George turned to Consumer Matters for help. A BC Hydro technician arrived at George's home two days later. Sure enough, what I had come up with was true. The, the meter were actually switched. BC Hydro telling Consumer Matters, we believe the meters were switched in December 2011 when the meter was exchanged at this address. From our investigation, we concluded the customer had been underbilled over the years, but was overbilled in the more recent months. In the end, George received a credit of over $500, and his neighbor Frank received a credit of around $1,500. So when they dug into it, though, they went back uh, to the time that they had installed the meters, and uh, we came out looking uh, a lot happier. An outcome, George says, should have and could have been resolved much sooner. Hydro says in the event it discovers a switch meter, all impacted accounts will be adjusted. Again, if the customer was overbilled, they will see an adjustment for the entire time the error occurred and refunded the difference. If a customer is underbilled, Hydro says it will backbill a maximum of six months for the correct electricity consumption from the date Hydro crews confirm there was an issue with the meters. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks, Anne. If you purchased a Lotto Max ticket in Vancouver last August and haven't checked your tickets yet, you should probably get on that. BCLC says there is an unclaimed $15 million Lotto Max ticket set to expire at midnight August 13th of this year. All prize winners have 52 weeks from the draw date to claim their prize. The exact location where that ticket was purchased won't be announced until the winner has come forward. Up next, a dramatic takedown in a busy neighborhood. She was a screech. She was like, boom. What witnesses saw as the VPD stopped a suspected stolen vehicle. Also ahead, a mysterious investigation underway in Nelson. How half the town's police force is under review. Good evening. Traffic is in good shape both ways over here tonight at the Portman Bridge with just some leftover volume eastbound on Highway 1 through the Burnaby Lake stretch after clearing multiple earlier issues there. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $16 million plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Portman Bridge. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Camp Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. 
A mysterious probe is underway in Nelson. Global News has learned nearly half the officers on the Nelson police force are under investigation. Catherine Urquhart has more. The Nelson Police Department is the oldest municipal police department in the province, in existence since 1897. Now it's the focus of an investigation, which was ordered by the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner. Approximately 20 officers work there, and the investigation involves about half of the department. The OPCC won't confirm details of the investigation, including whether the allegations may be racism-related and involve use of police computers. Members of the Vancouver Police Department are conducting the investigation. Nelson Mayor John Dooley, who is chair of the police board, told Global News, the report is not complete and it is still under investigation, adding, we can't comment at this time. He declined an on-camera interview. The Nelson Police Department has not responded to a request for comment. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth declined to comment. About 10,000 people live in Nelson. Many of them will surely have questions now as to why about half of their police department is now under investigation. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Now to a dramatic police takedown in the Fairview area of Vancouver this afternoon. VPD cruisers boxed in a gray vehicle at 10th Avenue in Hemlock. A witness tells Global News they saw officers smash a window and pull out the suspect. Police say this was in relation to a stolen vehicle from Burnaby. The suspect has been arrested and charges will be recommended. The police were trying to get this guy to come out and they hauled him out of the truck and pinned him down on the ground and then moved him to the side of the road and arrested him. So anytime there is a, um, a stolen vehicle, that's obviously a high-risk situation. Uh, I believe in this case the, the suspect wasn't complying, he wasn't listening to police um, demands, so no, it's not uncommon for us to, to do something like that. Vancouver police say they are working with Burnaby RCMP on the file. RCMP in the South Okanagan want to know if you have seen a suspect who's considered armed and dangerous. Police are looking for 29-year-old Stephen Marlowe Gallagher in connection with a Canada Day incident on the east side of Asuyas Lake. Police say a group of people were getting ready to watch the fireworks when a man approached and fired several shots, wounding a 22-year-old Maple Ridge man. RCMP are now looking into a possible connection with two other shootings in Penticton in late June. One involved an RCMP officer being shot at during an impaired driving investigation. Police are warning the public that if they see Gallagher, they should not approach him but call 911 immediately. I'd also appeal to his associates and explain to them that we do not feel that they are safe when they are in his presence. He needs to be taken off the street. People need to call us if they know his whereabouts. RCMP say Gallagher is from Oliver and is well known in the local community. Coming up, the Omicron tsunami. It was this gigantic tidal wave that hit us. New data on the spread of the virus in Canada over the last five months why it was so rapid, and how to protect yourself. Also caught on video, Delta police need your help tracking down this man who went out of his way to damage a pride flag. 
Traffic is steady in both directions tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Just leftover volume as there usually is, eastbound on the connector between Knight and the S-curve. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $16 million plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. On the second day of the Assembly of First Nations annual meeting in Vancouver, most of the turmoil surrounding the national chief took a back seat. Instead, some of the youngest delegates took to the stage, asking for more attention to be paid to child welfare. Neetu Gartcher reports. So, emergency draft resolution number three, special business suspension to the national chief has been defeated. With 26 in support and 252 opposed to continuing the temporary suspension of the Assembly of First Nations National Chief, she says the numbers speak for themselves. I'm very relieved that the truth has come up, that it's being honoured and it's being heard. I came under attack and I had to, uh, you know, do press releases, things that I normally wouldn't do in a situation like this. And so I had to do things that uh, brought this issue into the public eye. But for some of the youngest representatives in the room, like AFN Youth Council's Rosalie Labilwa, all this is drama created by poor leadership, allowing politics to get in the way of what really matters, Indigenous children who've been separated from their families. Every time you decide to squabble amongst yourselves, you forget the children and the young people that you once swore to protect. And if you want to gauge the outcomes of your leadership, then you should look to our children. We have the highest suicide rates in the world, especially within our northern communities. Also addressing the assembly, Cindy Woodhouse, a lead negotiator in the recent $20 billion settlement to compensate First Nations children and families discriminated against under federal programs and policies. We push for a trauma-informed claims process that reduces the need for invasive and triggering questions. Members later hearing from advocates who were removed from their homes as kids. Ashley Box says she was apprehended from her mother and placed with a white family the day she was born in Vancouver. These shortcomings have really, really eaten away at me for the past year and a half since they were realized. And I want to be clear that the pursuit of justice, compensation and other remedies isn't over yet. When it comes to the remaining emergency resolutions involving the national chief, the one to oust her through a non-confidence vote has been removed. The one to commence a forensic audit and an internal AFN investigation has been amended multiple times and now pushed to a vote on Thursday. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Vancouver. Delta police have released surveillance video of a disturbing attack on a pride symbol and are asking for the public's help to find the suspect. It happened early Tuesday morning at the Ladner Church. Police say the suspect covered his face, tried to cover the camera, and then began striking the flag. Police say the pole the man used had a sharp tip and the flag was torn in several places. The mischief or the vandalism, it needs to stop. Uh, to achieve that, that goal to, to stop the vandalism, uh, we're asking for the public assistance. We need the assistance to help identify who this male is. We're inclusive of everybody, and this is one way uh, that we can show the appreciation for, for our own community. It is disappointing, very disappointing. The suspect is described as a Caucasian male between 50 and 60 years old, wearing all black clothing with a blue neck and face covering. This is the third time the church's pride flag has been attacked. In a statement, the church says despite the attacks, it won't be deterred from its belief that God loves each and every single person just as they are. 
While more Canadians are enjoying the benefits of being outdoors in the summer, including the lifting of many COVID-19 restrictions, we shouldn't be complacent. There is an uptick in COVID-19 cases in many parts of the country. Global's Tim Sargent has the details. A new report has been issued illustrating how susceptible Canadians are to COVID-19 and specifically the Omicron subvariants. The COVID-19 Immunity Task Force is describing the results of their study in Omicron tsunami. Between December 2021 and May of this year, it's estimated more than 17 million Canadians were infected. That's an average of 100,000 a day. And the task force reports the number of Canadians who've contracted COVID-19 is well above 50%. It was this gigantic tidal wave that hit us. The report studied blood samples from Canadians, focusing on antibodies built up from previous infections. The results, those who have contracted the Omicron variant or one of its subvariants, steeply increased in every province. This uh, variant was extremely transmissible. It caused people to have asymptomatic infections, infections with no symptoms. So they went about doing their daily thing and we were lifting all these restrictions. Omicron with its various subvariants, continues to spread. A lot of people mistakenly believe that if you get COVID once, you can never get COVID again. That is not true. Dr. Chris Lamos says that while Canada has a strong vaccination rate for the first and second doses, the rate for third and even fourth doses is very low, especially among the youth and young adults. While the Omicron subvariants aren't as virulent as previous variants, it continues to mutate and becomes more transmissible. Um, do you take any medication? Deciding whether to get a fourth shot to prevent illness really depends on the individual's health and the length of time between doses. If it's been a long time since your third dose and if you're at higher risk, because the case numbers are going up, I probably would get a fourth dose at this point. Epidemiologists say up-to-date vaccinations and wearing masks still offer the best protection. Cut people slack if they're wearing a mask and you don't feel like wearing one. Just ahead, a construction worker in a very precarious situation. Oh my God, oh my God, hang on! The frightening incident raising all kinds of safety questions next. Plus, ranking Canada's best small cities, how BC beat out the rest for the top two spots. terrifying situation for a Toronto construction worker who got caught in a cable connected to a crane and found himself hanging precariously several stories above ground. That frightening moment before he was lowered to safety caught on video. But as Global's Catherine McDonald reports, there are now questions about how this could have happened in the first place. It was business as usual at this construction site in downtown Toronto on Wednesday. Hard to believe given what happened here Tuesday afternoon. It was before 2 p.m. when construction workers noticed their colleague dangling from a cable attached to a crane after getting entangled when he was hooking a load onto the crane. Oh my God, hang on, hang on up. Just let your heart out for, bro. Philip Ferreira, a former health and safety officer with the Ministry of Labour, says he was sent the video from an anonymous source, likely a worker, and posted it on his social media site. I was shocked, um, but not surprised. A health and safety consultant now, Ferreira, has a website that shows construction mishaps. Oh my God, how the f*** did this happen? And like many, Ferreira was relieved to hear the crane operator realize what had happened before it was too late. That worker most likely will never forget that situation, ever. It's a definitely a scary situation, um, and it could have ended up a lot worse. 
PCL, the construction company in charge of the project, released a statement which says in part, fortunately the rigger was safely lowered to the work surface and not seriously injured. The safety of all our workers and the community is our top priority. The video, which has gone viral, has everyone talking. It's scary that something like that can happen. It's a very dangerous job. And I, I hope he's okay. Well, I remember there was a problem with this construction site. What happened? The crane fell or something and hit. Yeah. It was July 2020 at this same construction site when a crane collapsed onto a building. In that case, four buildings had to be evacuated. And while the crane operator was not injured, the Ministry of Labor was again called in. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, there should be like more vigilance happening here. The Ministry of Labour says its investigation is ongoing. The employer Modern Niagara and PCL Construction now under the microscope. As for the young construction worker who I'm told is in his mid-20s, I'm told he broke his thumb and he was not at work today. Catherine McDonald, Global News. Well, hopefully he has the rest of the week off, I would think, Yvonne. I hope so. Yeah, no kidding. Glad he's okay. All right. Um, <laughs> We got through today, and there should be some more sunshine on the way later. Yeah. And temperatures are going to warm up in the long range, uh, heating up, especially for the interior. And I'll have more on that coming up in just a moment. It was a bit of a mixed bag this morning, though we had a few isolated showers. Bless you, Sophie, if anyone heard that at home. Uh, there we go. Temperatures are currently sitting at 19 degrees. And we've got a northwesterly wind at 15 kilometers per hour. With the Humidex, areas away from the water. Abbotsford feeling like 26. Hope sitting at 24 in areas near West Van with the Humidex at 23. Highs today, though, it did warm up. Lytton getting up to 30 degrees. Williams Lake 19 in areas near Trail of the Day, topping out at 24. We do have a few spotty showers that'll be in the mix. Most areas across Metro Vancouver will see a pickup once again overnight for the morning hours. That's the greatest chance for some showers for Metro Vancouver. We're still seeing some instability, a few thunderstorms possible for the southern interior, and it's similar across the central interior with that line just working its way across Prince George. So overnight and for tomorrow morning, a heads up, a few showers in the mix. Should ease off, we'll be underneath a mix of sun and cloud and temperatures tomorrow getting back up into the low 20s. Now here's a snapshot of what we're anticipating, especially through the day for tomorrow. The areas of concern will be for the central and southern half. We'll see that chance for some showers and the risk of a thunderstorm. Once we get past tomorrow, though, the southern interior will start to see a nice break, and that should kick in by Friday. An update from the BC River Forecast Centre. Quinell River still underneath the flood warning. Flood watch for the Nechaka Chocolton, as well as the South Thompson. Now this is a heads up. I wanted to show you the upper level chart. As we get in towards next week, the latter half of the weekend and into early next week, it is going to warm up many spots into the interior, though. We'll see those temperatures soaring into the upper 20s. For tomorrow, however, it's just a risk of thunderstorms, a bit of instability in the mix. A nice break will be on the way as we get in towards our Friday. A few thunderstorms isolated will be possible along the south coast, especially for the island and for the Sunshine Coast. And I wanted to show the long-range forecast Monday, Tuesday with that sunshine, temperatures up to 24. All right, tonight's weather window. This was captured over the weekend from Okanagan Falls. A gorgeous shot of the lights taken by Greg. That's beautiful. Squire's being distracting in the background. I know. I don't, I don't know, know what he's I doing. I can't figure out what's happening, too. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm distracted. I'm not being distracting. I, my back hurt. I was just stretching it out. That's how you stretch? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Weird we stretches. We all have our ways. You know. We'll get him to demonstrate in one sec, but I want to show you this first. When classes are over for the day at Vancouver's Lord Nelson Elementary, the students don't just walk out of school. 
they slide out in style. The school, which was just completed in 2019, has this special design feature, a pair of slides from the second floor. Students were asked for their input on the design of their new school, and this was one of their suggestions, and the architects incorporated it. I think it's pretty cool that they added these slides from the second floor. Um, I'm, I'm excited to start going down them a lot, and yeah, I'm going to be probably in one of the classes close to there, because that's where the grade 7s go. The slides were actually in place last fall, but they couldn't be used until this spring due to some missing parts. All right, show us how you stretch your back. Well, I should do this, and then this. That is, I do that, hmm? and then like that. This? Okay. But now we know that's what he was doing, folks at home. That's why he was, he was distracting. I'm sorry. Okay, what's coming up? I'm sorry. It's okay. Oh, okay. It's okay. Okay, good. Uh, Whitecaps midfielder Andres Kubos has made a huge difference since he arrived in Vancouver. He's a quality player, and he is just the same as what Ryan Gold's done. He makes the team better. And last Saturday, his defensive and offensive skills came together for this winning goal against LAFC. Also tonight. So my husband and I, 10 years ago, decided to move to BC, and it was between Kelowna and Victoria. BC scores big when it comes to the best small cities in Canada. The rankings and which one claimed top spot later on the news hour. All right, Squire, your turn. Thank you very much. Uh, one day from the draft, and JT Miller is still a Vancouver Canuck. Now, there are rumors all over Montreal that teams are trying to catch up to Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford in the hotel to talk to them about Miller, or they're calling their cell phones asking the Canucks what they want. The Canucks and Miller's agent both say the two sides are not close to a new contract yet, if that's in the cards. Remember, Vancouver does have Miller under contract through next season if they want to keep him. Oh, and speaking of next season, the Canucks schedule came out today. And the season starts with a five-game road trip and ends with a three-game road trip. But in March, they'll have nine home games for the stretch drive. And there are 13 back-to-back games, which is three more than last year. Here are some of the notable home games for the Vancouver Canucks this season. Sidney Crosby on the 28th. Alex Ovechkin on November 29th. There you see Florida, last year's top regular season team. And Toronto doesn't arrive until later in the season, March the 4th, you do get Colorado twice in a matter of two weeks at Rogers Arena. Well, since he showed up in Vancouver, midfielder Andres Kubas has been the Vancouver Whitecaps' best player. He scored the winner against LAFC on the weekend, but it's his defensive work that's been really impressive. He's kind of like a beaver. He's constantly building dams in front of opposing players, forcing them to go off their path or they just lose the ball to him outright. The Whitecaps' big signing this season is making a splash. It's easy to pile on and celebrate a goal, but it's his defensive work that's had the biggest impact on the club. In Andre Kubas' 352 minutes with the Caps, the opposition has scored just once while he's on the pitch, and that was in his club debut coming off the bench against Seattle. Since Kubas has become the starter, the Whitecaps have not allowed a goal in league play. That's three straight clean sheets against teams currently in playoff position. He's been hacking at everybody's ankles, which is good. Uh, we needed somebody like that. Uh, it's, it's great to have him in the midfield there. He, he eats up everybody and you know, he controls the midfield for us. 
you see him for 90 minutes on a weekend or a weekday, but you don't see all the work that he does in the gym. You don't see all the work that he does on the training pitch. Uh, and those are the little things. And, and, you know, it's fun playing with a guy like that, going to work with a guy like that. While he plays in front of the three defenders, Kubas helps limit the opportunities for the opposition by taking away passing lanes, constantly applying pressure, and creating turnovers. In just four appearances, he's already fourth in the league with 3.32 interceptions per match. Uh, since he came, he's, he's been everywhere. You know, he's running a lot. He's covering. He's playing really smart. He's uh, covering a lot of space, uh, interception, uh, intercepting on many balls from, from the opponents. He won the most duels in the Caps' recent match against league leaders LAFC with seven, and he showed how quickly he can turn defense and offense with his 89th-minute winner at BC Place on Saturday, which helped him earn his first MLS Team of the Week award. The fact that he scored and the, the beautiful goal, it's actually a plus. So if, uh, if he keeps also doing this also offensively, very good. Every person in that stadium was in that dog pile, and when you have 20-plus thousand instead of 20 players, it felt like 20,000 people in that dog pile, and that's a, that's a cool feeling. All right, Nathan Rourke, the CFL, or one of the CFL, Performers of the Month in June, and for good reason. He led the Lions to a 3-0 record, of course. He leads the CFL in touchdown passes. He also is tied in the CFL with three rushing touchdowns. There is nothing this guy can't do so far this season. If, uh, All right, Blue Jays taking on here the Oakland A's. Tied 1-1, eighth inning, Bo Bichette. That's a solo shot. That's the winning run as Toronto breaks a five-game losing streak. They'll be in Seattle starting tomorrow for four games. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you want to go down and watch the Jays. All right, Wimbledon. Rafael Nadal's dad was yelling from the crowd to stop playing. An abdominal muscle injury he was taking on Taylor Fritz, and Fritz was up 2-1 after three sets. But Nadal, despite all the pain, will fourth force make that a fifth and final set, which goes into a tie break. And as we've seen, I don't know, a million times, Nadal just finds a way. When you think he's done, he's not done. And he was all over Fritz in the tiebreaker. If he is okay, he will take on Nick Kyrgios, who won his quarterfinal match today on Friday. But Nadal said he's not sure if his stomach muscles will allow him to play on Friday against Nick Kyrgios. But it is Nadal, and he usually does find a way to get on the court and do something incredible. Mm -hmm. There you go. All right. Thank you, Squire. Up next, Canada's best small cities right here in our own backyard. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophia Jury is now deliberating the fate of a Richmond RCMP officer charged with exposing himself to teenage girls. If a verdict is reached tonight, we will have it at 11. Plus, from above, it looks a bit like a pothole, but wait for it. Wait for it. It is much worse than that. The huge void beneath the B.C. highway repaired just in time. These stories and more on Global News at 11. Sophie. Oh, dear. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Another feather in the cap for British Columbia. Three of Canada's top 10 small cities are right here in this very province, according to a new ranking. Global's Jamie Tawil with more on which cities stood out and why. 
Residence Consultancy offered up this inaugural list of the top-performing Canadian cities with populations under 200,000, analyzing a total of 32 factors, from overall experience to flight connections, even promotions, a category that analyzes Google searches, social media tags, and TripAdvisor reviews. Our goal is to provide a holistic picture uh, of a city, kind of a 360-degree view on um, all of these different factors together rather than just look at livability or just look at tourism by itself. And it was a one-two punch for British Columbia with Victoria and Kelowna taking the top two spots. North Vancouver not far behind at number six. Of course, Kelowna was recently named Canada's fastest growing city, so its second place ranking may not come as much of a surprise. But one of the areas that Kelowna really performs the best in is our programming category, where we look at things like nightlife, theaters, shopping, restaurants, um, and even family-friendly activities. Um, and Kelowna performs uh, you know, in the top five in all of those areas, and that really helps drive the, its score and drives its ranking up, up to the top. But not quite to the top. Even having Kelowna International Airport wasn't enough to trump BC's capital. And one of the main reasons why? Yeah, Victoria, from an economic perspective, um, does a little bit better than, uh, than Kelowna. Um, and particularly also in our, in our people category, where we look at the percentage of the population that has a bachelor's degree or above. So Victoria uh, performs much better in that particular area. So with not much separating the two BC cities sitting atop the list, Global hit the streets of Kelowna's waterfront, where, not surprisingly, there wasn't much consensus with the rankings. My husband and I, 10 years ago, decided to move to BC, and it was between Kelowna and Victoria, and Kelowna won. Here we are, 10 years later, we wouldn't move. I would say Kelowna because I live here. <laughs> and too, yeah. But I love Victoria because of the ocean. So it would be kind of a 50-50, honestly. And I prefer lake water rather than ocean. And just the small town feel here is great. And the proximity to golf. Aside from Victoria, Kelowna and North Van in the top 10, other BC cities that crack the top 25 include Kamloops, Nanaimo and Saanich. Interesting. Now, was it the district of North Vancouver or the city of North Vancouver that made that That's list? a good point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like Langley City and Langley Township. Which Justin, our director, pointed out is the best township in B.C. because <laughs> it's also the only township in B.C. <laughs> nice. All right, uh, Yvonne, last word on weather to you. Uh, we've got a few uh, showers in the mix. That'll be for tomorrow morning. Should ease off and then a heads up. It's going to warm up, especially for the latter half of the weekend. And then leading in towards next week, I typically don't give the seven day, but it's just to sort of show the trend that it is going to warm up with some sunshine. That's where summer is. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.